Well, good morning, church. How are you? Good. It is good to see you here today on a pre-Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, Hey, before we jump in for today, I have a special announcement. Uh, You guys have been here uh, for a while. Uh, You know a little bit, not not just yet. Uh, uh, We have a certain structure here at the church. You obviously have a pastor, you have a staff, uh, but we are also led by our elders and deacons. Uh, We have deacons who serve the church uh, in a myriad number of ways, uh, but a lot of the leadership function is is is, uh, done by the elders, and I serve as one of those elders. Uh, We can have upwards of nine elders, and right now they're spread between our two campuses, both here and at Chelsea. Uh, And we have an amazing group of elders. I I love this model. It is biblical. Uh, It allows not just for checks and balances, but for accountability. It also allows us to have more gifts uh, to be filled out in that elder board as we really uh, kind of flesh out uh, the vision of our church and shepherding and leadership. Uh, And we have had a a number of men over the years who have led faithfully in this role. But uh, periodically they will roll off. In fact, every year we typically have at least one who are going to be rolling off. And this year is unique. We're actually going to have three elders uh, who are going to be rolling off of our elder board, which gives me the opportunity of nominating some new elders to join us. Uh, First off, the ones rolling off are are going to be Kelly Stevenson. Uh, He is not changing in any way here at the church, uh, but he has been serving for over six years on our elder board uh, and has asked for a break uh, from that duty. And so he uh, fills one of those staff elder slots. And then we have two lay elders uh, who will be rolling off in Lewis Cole and Tom Cash. Uh, They have served both seven and six years respectively. And they have really walked us through the creation of the Chelsea campus, lots of different things, uh, but they too are due for uh, a rest. And so they are ready to roll off as well. And so we're going to have an opportunity to thank these men in the months to come. Uh, But that gives me the opportunity to nominate uh, a few men. And after uh, a lot of prayer and consideration, I have three nominations for us. First off, I'd like to nominate Dr. David Watson uh, to fill that staff uh, elder role that Kelly is vacating. Uh, Dave has been with us well over uh, a year and a half now as our executive pastor. Uh, He not only has helped us really kind of shore up our staff, but help us really uh, implement all of the ministries of the church. And most of us have gotten a chance to know him uh, over this past year and a half. He has both a master's and a doctorate degree from Beeson Divinity School. He has served as a pastor and in other ministerial roles He brings a wealth of wisdom to the task, uh, and I'm very excited about nominating him for that position. Uh, In the two lay elder spots, uh, first I'd like to nominate Tony Bell. Uh, Many of you guys will recognize uh, Tony Bell. He's been a longtime member here at the church. He has served as a deacon. Uh, He has led multiple community groups, and he's doing one of those uh, even now. He also serves with our students and helps lead them uh, as well. Uh, He has a passion for shepherding the people in our church. Uh, He has a deep love for the Lord, and we've been able to watch that over a long period of time. And so I'm very excited to nominate Tony. Uh, And in the other lay elder spot, I'd like to nominate Rob Zelosi. Uh, Rob also has been here for many years. Uh, he is a current deacon, uh, and he is also leading a community group. And I've actually been a, a part of that community group for a period of time and be able to see him in action and how he shepherds and leads other people. Uh, and I'm very excited about what the Lord has been doing through him and the wisdom he brings to that task as well. So uh, as senior pastor, I am nominating these men for elder. And here's what happens next. I nominate, but only a we as a congregation can vote on this. So over the course of the 
the next two months, uh, we're going to have an opportunity to pray with these men. Uh, the elders are going to be giving them uh, a test, and we'll be reviewing that. They will have a full elder board where we'll examine them. But you also will have an opportunity to pray for them, ask questions, get to know them. Uh, and we're going to spend a couple months doing that. Uh, and then if everybody's in agreement, we'll bring a formal proposal in January, and we would vote in late January on bringing them on to fill those elder spots. Listen, these are crucial spots in the leadership of our church. But I'm very excited that the Lord has provided people to help us in this uh, capacity. So please be praying for them uh, as we move into this season of nomination uh, and prayer for these positions. Uh, I do actually want to pray in a second. And one very specific prayer request I do want to mention. Many, many of you guys may have gotten the email this week about Brian Stevens. Uh, many of you guys know he joined us uh, less than a year ago. He was baptized right over here uh, a little while later. Uh, but even when he came here, we knew that he was wrestling with cancer. Uh, I've been to the hospital many times with him this week. Uh, we have moved into hospice care at this point, uh, and we are toward the end stages here. Uh, he's actually having a better day today, uh, spending time with his wife, his kids, uh, his family who's traveled in. Uh, but this is obviously a very hard time. I, I just uh, told him we would be praying for him today. And so I'd like to take a moment for us just to lift he and his family up if we could. So bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the unbelievable gifts you give us here at this church, the family of faith that you build. Lord, for, for the men that you've uh, sent to us to be elders in the past and the ones you're sending to us to be elders in the future. God, just the provision that you give to us so that we can follow after you. And I pray that you would just bless each of these men, the ones serving, the ones nominated, Lord, that we would discern your will as we move forward as your people. But we specifically lift up our brother, Brian. Uh, Lord, as he is literally in the fight of his life, we lift him up to you and ask your hand to be upon him, to give him strength, to give him courage. Uh, God, that you literally would just be with him moment by moment, hour by hour, and walk him down this path, um, and that you would do your will. Lord, we lift up his wife, Nicole. We lift up their boys, uh, their entire family, Lord, as we are walking through dark days. And we ask that your will would be done and that you truly would. Oh, surround them and help them by your spirit. But we lift them up to you and ask your blessing upon them in the name of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. We all said, amen, amen. Thank you so much. Grab your Bibles if you will. Let's go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Not the gospel of John, but the letter of 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 is where we're going to be in just a second as we finally round out our worldview series. Uh, we have been here for 11 weeks really looking at what does it mean to have a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview. And look, even though we're ending this, we have by no means covered everything that we could cover as far as all the issues of the world. We have not talked about uh, racism or justice or immigration. We have not fully explored gender or, or marriage or poverty or, or politics. There's so many other issues that we could tackle. And hopefully we will be able to tackle those in different series and maybe in a recap series uh, later on next year, a shorter version uh, of that. Uh, but even if we have not tackled every single issue, hopefully now you are better equipped to engage with these issues because you have a more thought out Christian worldview. We have looked to the Lord and he has shown us, hey, here's how I see things. Here's, I'm showing you the truth about me, about yourself, about life. And as you and I see things the way God sees things, as we live and understand things the way he understands them, this becomes a lens 
that we see everything through. And so regardless of the issue, we start with our worldview, and that helps us interact with all these worldly issues. And so think of some of the things we already know now, having examined them. We know that you and I are not cosmic accidents. We are not here by happenstance. You were created on purpose by a God who loves you. And so if you and I are going to find purpose in life, we don't find that just within ourselves. We find it in the one who made us. He had a purpose in mind. And so we find our purpose as we live in him. We found out that we were made in the very image of God. And not just you and me, but every single human being. Which means that every single human being is worthy of dignity and respect. Even if they are different from us, even if they disagree with you on something, every single human being is worthy of dignity and respect because they are made in the very image of God. We found out we're made for a relationship in him. This is the whole purpose of our life is that we might know the God who made us and we might live in him. This is where we find joy. This is where we find life. We cannot find it in the things of the world. But clearly there's a problem and it's us. We are sinners. We have messed this thing up and we're not, we didn't just make a mistake. We are sold in slavery to sin. We can't stop doing this. We can't save ourselves. And so I can't trust everything in me. I have a sinful heart. And so I have to be a little suspect of that. But praise be that God does not leave us in our sin. He sends his son to die for us, to save us. Not when we get our act together, but even when we don't. He saves us not by works, but by his grace. This is why we surrender to him. We don't just try to follow him. We literally surrender our lives to him. Because when we find our life in Christ, we gain eternal life. Just like he has. And so we live in him. And as we do so, he is in the process of restoring us, transforming us, of building his kingdom in this world. And we know that even beyond this world, God says, listen, a time is coming when I will put all things right. Knowing that this future is coming, guess what? I don't have to seek vengeance in any situation. God says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. Which means I don't have to. God will bring all things right, which means I should not seek that on my own. Furthermore, when we face trouble in this life, tragedy, uh, disappointment, all, the, all the, the sufferings of this world, we should not be surprised. It's a broken world. We should actually expect this. But as we go through these things, we know that there's coming a day where God wipes all of these things away. And so even in the midst of suffering, I can have peace, hope, even joy, knowing that none of these things can snatch me out of his hand and I have an eternal life that cannot be taken away from me. When this is the way we look at life, it helps us understand all these other issues. But as we wrap up the series today, I thought it might be very important to look at the things that might be a little bit more subtle when it comes to the world. Many of us are worried about the world. We see it out there, say, Adam, I'm worried about the world. I'm worried about where the world is going. I'm worried about this issue or that issue. And so we should be. But there are some aspects of the world that might have escaped our notice. And those might be the most dangerous. And so look at what John says. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, listen to what he says. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Three verses. They're compact, but they're intense. They are packed with meaning. And so we're going to do our best to unpack this here this morning. Uh, Before we jump into the verses proper, we need to talk a little bit about the author. Uh, The author here is John. This is the Apostle John. This is John who walked with Jesus. This is John who saw all the miracles. John who has touched the very resurrection side of the resurrected Jesus Christ. He was there at Pentecost. He saw all the things in Acts. He's been living all of this out. But now, later on in life, we find that John is a pastor. At the time of this letter, he is no longer the 20-something he was when he first followed Jesus. He is most likely in his 70s or 80s. And now he's a pastor shepherding multiple churches. And he speaks to them as a father speaks to a child. As a shepherd speaks to his sheep. He is a pastor addressing his flock. And you can kind of tell he's mellowed a little bit. You might remember that John was a little bit fiery in his youth. Uh, when John and his brother James would follow Jesus, one day uh, there were some people who just disrespected Jesus. They rejected Jesus. And their solution was, Jesus, let's just call down fire from heaven to consume them. Sodom and Gomorrah style. Take out the whole town. You want us to do it? Let's do it right now. Call down fire from heaven. To which Jesus said, chill out. No, he did not take their suggestion. He did give them a nickname. He said, I'm calling you guys the sons of thunder. How about that? Because you guys apparently have a penchant for this, but over time they have mellowed. Uh, And so now we have John who in this very letter is going to tell us God is love. This is the God he has been walking with for decades now. But John knows exactly what's in the world. The world didn't just murder Jesus. It murdered James and then Peter and all his friends. At this point in John's life, he's seen almost all of his friends killed for their faith. He may very well be the last apostle standing at the time he writes this letter. He is is under no illusions about what life in the world is like. Let's break down some of these words here to really see what we say. First off, he says, do not love the world. We've been talking about this whole series, but I want to make sure we have got this locked in our soul. When John uses the word world, in the Greek, that's the word cosmos— He is not referring to physical creation. There's a few times in scripture where the word is used that way. But when John uses this word, he is almost always talking about something different. He does not mean creation. He is talking about the human system of values and ideas that has set itself against the Lord and his kingdom. It is a human system of values and ideas that sets itself in opposition to the Lord. We say no to your ways. We say no to your authority. This is the world. But he's not here talking about people. Okay, well, in one sense he is. Of course he is. I mean, you have to talk about people because values, uh, you don't find those in inanimate objects. You only find values in human beings. But John's not talking about any particular human being or even any particular group. You can't localize the world in them or this ethnicity or this nationality or this cultural group or that cultural group. This is everybody. This is humanity. This is all of us as a part of fallen humanity that has rebelled against the Lord. That is the world that John is warning against. Now look then what he says though. He says, do not love the world. 
Well, it didn't seem very shocking when I said that to you, right? Because that, that sounds fairly Bible-ish, does it not? That's Bible 101. Don't love the world. I mean, you expect to hear something like that, do you not? But this is actually pretty striking for John. If you're reading this in the Greek and if you read all of his other letters, this would really stand out. You see, what this is, this statement, do not love the world, that's called an imperative. It's a very particular tense in the Greek. The trick is, though, is that John almost never uses the imperative. If you compare him to all of the other New Testament writers, he uses the imperative the least by far. He just doesn't typically give you these commands, these imperatives. So for John to use this here is a little bit striking. This is like somebody who never raises their voice, who finally gets around to raising their voice. You ever know anybody like that? They're just super even keel. They never get upset. They, they never get super happy, never get super sad. They're just always even keel, except for that one time where they just totally raised their voice and went off the rails. Well, look, if something like that happens, you realize, okay, now it's important. This must be important for them to finally raise their voice. This must be important. John's finally raising his voice. And he says, do not love the world. It's a command. It's an imperative. Why? He says, because if you love the world and the things in the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. If you love the things of the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. That doesn't sound good. But even here, we need to really be specific. What does he mean by the love of the Father? Love of the world seems to be fairly evident. What does he mean by love of the Father? I know this seems obvious, but it's actually not. Because it can mean one of two different things. When we talk about the love of the Father, this might be just the love that God puts in us. Our love for others. Well, I've got the love of the Father in me. People sometimes want to do this just to kind of make love generic, just to say, no, Adam, I just, I just love people. I don't want to judge anybody. I just love everybody. Isn't that what God does? I just, I just love everybody. That's the love of the Father in me for everyone else. Isn't that what I'm supposed to have? And in some sense, that's true, but that's not what he means here. When he says the love of the Father, what he more specifically means is his love for the Father. If I love the world, then I do not love the Father. These two things push each other out. They exclude one another. The more I love the world, the less I'm going to love the Father. And conversely, the more I love the Father, the less I am going to love the world. And so it begs the question, where is our heart? Are we captured by the world or do we have a true love for the person of the Lord, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do we love him personally? Remember that relationship that we were made for. This is both directional and defining. Whichever love dominates your life is going to set the pattern of your life, the direction of your life. It defines us. Which is the love that captures our heart? Because this is going to define us in many ways. But then in verse 16, he says, for all that is in the world. And then he gives us three different things. We get the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life. Let's talk about these all together. And then we'll get down into specifics of these. What does he mean right here by the, by the desires of the eyes, of the um, desires of the flesh, desire of the eyes, and the pride of life? Your translation actually might have it differently. It might say the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, or the pride of possessions. What's he mean here? All right, well, what he's here talking about, this word for lust, it is uh, epithemia. It is a strong desire. Now, that by itself is not bad. 
It's not bad to have strong desires. There's places in Scripture where these strong desires are actually a good thing. But the majority of uses of this word in the Greek are negative. They're pejorative, where these are unchecked desires. These are unruly desires, desires that overpower us, desires that lead us astray. These are ungoverned, unguided desires. Okay, those are the things you really got to worry about in your life. These are a part of the world. But here's the other interesting thing. Isn't the world out there? And when we're talking about the world, we typically think about it as like out there. It's the world. That you and I live in, but it's out there. But here he's talking about desires. Well, desires are in here. They're in me. They're in you. How come the world is out there, but the things that are in the world are now in me? Oh, oh, now it begins to come home that try as we might, the values of the world, they get into us too. Even as believers. This is the air that we breathe. This is the water we swim in. You cannot help but have drunk in, but to have drunk in many of these values. And if you and I just assume it's all out there, we're going to miss the fact that some of these values, they're actually in us and they drive us. We must be aware of the ways that the world has gotten into us. So three different things he marks out here. Three things we need to evaluate for ourselves. First, he talks about the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. Now, typically when you're talking about this, you think of sexual temptations, uh, and that would be correct. Most of the times when we talk about the lust of the flesh, we're talking about sexual temptations, carnal temptations. But that's not the only thing he's talking about. He's talking about any desire that is in our body that drives us. We say, well, we cannot listen to all of those desires. Those desires need to be put into check. We do not give full vent or reign to the lust of the flesh. Anything that you say, well, I just got to do that. Well, I can't not do that. I mean, I have to follow this. Okay, that's a lust of the flesh. Now, what the world's going to tell you is, Adam, you need to indulge that. Adam, that's you. Don't deny yourself. Indulge yourself. Man, you've got to be authentic. You've got to be true to yourself. If this is what you really want, if this is what you really desire, you must express that. You must follow through because all of your feelings are good, right? I mean, I mean you've got to trust your heart. And so if you truly desire this, if you really want this, you wouldn't hurt yourself. Therefore, you should trust yourself. You should always follow the feelings of your flesh, right? No. This would be a terrible idea because we are sinful, we are broken, and not all of our desires lead to your good. Some of our desires, left unchecked, will lead to your destruction. Examples here are legion. Some of you might have been here a few weeks ago. We did a special event we've never done before. Uh, We had a speed dating event. Uh, this was for anybody in our church who was not a part of a community group. We wanted to get you connected to a community group, whether you were a visitor or you just aren't in a group right now. Uh, and so we had everybody here at tables and we brought representatives from our community groups around uh, and they, they went speed dating style, five minutes at a time to all these tables and kind of introduced themselves in the hopes that you would get connected to a community group. We never did anything for it. It was a lot of fun. But one of the things we tried was we said, hey, we want it to be kind of fun and formal. So let's just provide a bunch of dessert for people, right? So we can have food and fun. It'll be nice. 
but my job was to be the MC uh, and to kind of keep this thing rolling, right? Because I had to keep people moving around from table to table. So I had the bright idea, hey, what if I tried all of the desserts and then gave everybody an update on how they were? I could just like rank them. This would be fun. And over the course of the evening, we could just kind of go through all of this. Now, I'm excited about this because I like dessert. I really do, right? So uh, Cindy Copeland, our amazing event coordinator, uh, had put all of this thing together. And as soon as we got in, I, she had bought one of my favorites, banana cream pie. And it was awesome. I ate the whole thing. It was from Full Moon. I was very impressed. I mean, so listen, I'm a fan of the banana cream pie. That was awesome. Told everybody this is the one to beat so far. But after that, I went back and got some pumpkin cheesecake, which was delicious. It was amazing. I mean, they had the whole works there. I mean, they had caramel sauce on it, a little bit of whipped cream on top of that. I mean, I ate the entire thing. I'm really a sucker for pump, pump, pumpkin anything. You put pumpkin in some that I am going to eat it. I love that I'm going to have pumpkin pie this week. It was amazing. I ate the whole thing. It was great. Thirdly, I went back there and they had some tiramisu. Now, that's not my total favorite, but listen, I liked it. It was good. I said, I'm only going to have a couple bites, but I had a couple more than that. I actually had about half the piece and it was awesome. It really was good. It was exciting. It was got a little coffee. It wasn't as sweet as some of the other ones. So I liked that. So I said, hey, number three is going to be tiramisu. That's really, really good. You tried. After that, I want some chocolate cake. Now, chocolate cake's not in my top five. It really not. And this one's like super decadent. It really was. I can only get to like two, three, four, like little bites of it. And I said, I don't know if I can have all that. I should probably slow down. I really should. And so I just kind of put that away. When I got and I saved the best for last because they had Joe's Italian strawberry cake. Have you had this stuff? It is amazing. I loved it. It was incredible. And I said, you can only have a couple of bites, but I probably should have a few more bites because it was incredible. And so I had all these five different things. So I was giving everybody updates on all this stuff. It was an amazing time. I mean, it really, it really, what? <laughs> yeah, you see it happening, right? My staff is telling me these things and they're trying to take the pies out of my hands. And it's not working. And I'm just getting faster and faster as the night goes on. I could have been on a sugar rush. (laughs) Here's though one of the things you can't do when you're close to 50. You can't eat four pieces of pie and have that not come back to haunt you. So we're leaving that day and they're going, hey, we've saved you some pieces of pie. You can take it home. I'm like, I really cannot get that away from me right now. Uh, I should not have that because it was already getting bad. And then I went home and had to confess to my wife, your husband is an idiot and I'm going to bed now and I'm going to try not to throw up, which is what I did for the next few hours. (laughs) Now, look, there's nothing wrong with the cakes and pies. They were delicious. They really were. Do you know what is wrong? Gluttony. Because that's what that was. But I wanted it. It was all delicious. I mean, there's nothing wrong with them. And so I should have it all, shouldn't I? That could never hurt me, could it? Yes, your desires can hurt you when you leave them unchecked and unregulated. This is true with sexual temptation, but it's really true of any of those desires in us. Do you leave your laziness unchecked? That's a carnal desire, by the way. I don't want to get up. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do these things. Do you leave your laziness unchecked? Do you leave your malice unchecked? I don't like this person. I'm, gonna let my, I'm just going to say whatever I want to say. No guard on my lips. I'm going to say whatever I want to say. Do you leave your anger unchecked? Mm, it's who I am. You got to deal with it. Oh, they do. Do you leave your anger unchecked? Okay, these are the lusts of the flesh. And when you leave these things unchecked, they will destroy you. Jesus says, no, 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 you're going to have to guard that. Those are the things of the world. Could God have any reason why he should say you should deny some of your desires? Yes. We talked a little bit about this last week, but uh, when we talk about sexual purity, God has said you save sex for the marriage context. This is made... For a man and a woman in a heterosexual context, this is how God created this. But you should save yourself until marriage. 
people have always looked at Christians weird for this. Every other culture looked at this and said, why? Why would you do that? Why? Why would you deprive yourself? Why would you put these kind of strictures on yourself? Surely your desires are greater than that. Why would you limit yourself to a monogamous relationship? What possible wisdom could God have in doing this? Well, I think there's a lot to be said. First off, God made sex so that it binds people together. This is why he keeps it in a marriage context. It's literally meant to bind you together in a relationship, to bind you to this person. And so look, if you're not at ready yet to be bound to somebody with everything you are, that means financially, with your future, your name, your life, your, your everything. If you're not willing to give those things up, then you're not really ready to give your entire body up either. Because if you bind yourself with somebody else, but then you rip that apart, there's naturally going to be damage. Can't be helped. That's why God hates divorce. It's because he says that's going to hurt you. Secondly, though, you say, well, Adam... <laughs> sorry, dude, I don't buy this from you. I sleep with whoever I want. I sleep around all the time and I don't feel damaged. I don't think I'm a problem. I think I'm fine. Yeah, here's what's happened. That, that ability for you to connect as God meant for you to connect, you can deaden that in your soul. You can literally just deaden that ability. You can reduce this down to a physical experience and now you're not able to enjoy what God meant for you to have. And so when you do find this person you want to be with, now you've lost something that you should have. Because you've deadened that part of your soul. Here's the third thing, though. God says, listen, I want you to deny your very good desires uh, in order for you to love your future spouse well. Why would I do that? Well, one of the things you're going to need to learn if you want to have a good marriage is self-denial. One of the big parts of marriage is this. You're going to need to tell yourself no so you can say yes to your spouse or to your children. You are constantly going to have to sacrifice what you want for the good of this family that you love. If you do not learn that lesson, your marriage will not last very long. And so part of this, as you and I get ready for marriage, is to say, hey, yeah, I'm going to deny myself. I am learning a very important skill. Sex is a gift. It is a joy that God gives to us. But I'm going to follow God's ways because when I do, it actually teaches me the skills I need to have the best marriage possible going forward. There are reasons to tell yourself no. We do not just let the lust of our flesh go unchecked in our life. Here's the second thing that he talks about, though. He talks about the lust of the eyes, the desires of the eyes. You say, well, Adam, we just, we, just, we just did that, right? Didn't we just talk about that? And that lust of the flesh? Well, not really. Here, we're not specifically talking about something like pornography or, or just straight up lust for somebody else. This is more the lust for things. This is the lust for possessions. This overwhelming desire to have stuff. And the idea is that if I had more stuff, then I would be happier. If I have these things, then I will be content. If I can have more stuff in life, more money, more houses, more things, more food, whatever it might be. If I have more, then that is always better. More is always better. I need to have these things. And this is what you and I have been brought up to believe. We are consumers at heart. In America, our entire economy is built upon us buying things. You dry that up, it wrecks the economy. And so there's a vested interest for all of us to be buying things, which is why we see all these advertisements. You and I have been being, being bombarded by advertisements our entire life. When I was growing up, it was always commercials. We don't see a lot of commercials because DVRs came along. Praise the Lord. 
But guess what? Advertising did not go away. They just found new ways to get advertising to us, new ways to pitch products to us. And did you know this? Every single advertisement that has ever been created on planet Earth is all based on one idea. Doesn't matter what product they're pushing, every single commercial or advertisement is all built on one idea. Do you know what it is? You are not happy. You're not. Look at you. Unhappy people. Miserable. All of us. But guess good news? I can help you. I can get you out of that unhappiness. I can help you. You only need one thing to get out of this unhappiness. Do you know what you need? You need this. Bing. Insert product here. That is every ad you have ever seen. If you just had this, you'd be happier. If you had more of this, you'd be happier. You didn't know you had a problem. Now you know you have a problem. You know what solves the problem? This thing. You should have this and you will be happier. And we go, must go to Old Navy. And you go out and get it. <laughs> we all do. Because we're bought into this idea. If I get this thing, then that will make me happy. This is why we have to upgrade. Why we have to keep upgrading? Oh, you only have the last year's model. It's still really good. No, you got to upgrade, 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 upgrade. Man, I got to have the latest model. Last model's not good enough. I got to upgrade this thing. If I don't have this thing, then I cannot be happy. Which is why I keep buying and buying and buying with the understanding that if I just had more, I would be happy, right? Right? We have forgotten the wisdom of Solomon. In the book of Ecclesiastes, who has all the money is in his entire country, who buys whatever he wants at the end of his life, says, you know what? It's worth nothing. This is meaningless. It is a chasing after the wind. It's meaningless. Why do we keep chasing after all this stuff? Look, it's not wrong to have things, but if you are not content with what you have now, you're not going to be content with more. Let me say that again. If you cannot be content with what you have now, you will not be content with more. If you cannot be content with the house you have now, you will not be content with a larger house. If you're not content with your salary now, you're not going to be content with a larger salary. It doesn't matter because contentment doesn't come from our possessions. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions is what Jesus tells us. This is simply the lust of the eyes that we have in this world. It's a part of this world. And thirdly, we have pride of life, the pride of life. Now, this is an interesting phrase. Uh, the word for life here in the Greek is bios. Uh, there's two words for life. Zoe is more like spiritual, like, like soulish life. And then there's bios, that's physical life. But when the word is used here, it is most likely referencing possessions, as in like our livelihood. Uh, you might remember the uh, story of the prodigal son, uh, where a kid goes to his father and says, Dad, wish you were dead. Just want your stuff. Give it to me early. And so the father, in sadness, it says he divides his property between them. That word for property is the same word that's used here. It's life. It means livelihood. So here he's talking about pride in possessions. And we say, well, Adam, we just did that. You just talked about that. We talked about all the stuff we have. No, 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 this is different. This isn't the thing itself. It's not having more things. This is the pride and what that thing brings us. It's not the thing itself. It's how that thing makes me feel. It's how that thing makes me look both to myself and to other people. This is like we say, Adam, I want to live in that house. It's not about that house or the square footage. It's the fact that that house is in that neighborhood. And that means I've arrived. You see, that says something to other people when they know where I live. It doesn't matter about the actual structure. It matters of what that thing brings to me. It's not about this car 
Now, this is the greatest car I've ever had. It's the fact that it's that kind of car and that says something to everybody else about what I can afford and where I can shop and what I can have that other people cannot have. It speaks that and I feel better about myself because of what this possession brings to me. It's not about the car itself. It's about what that car does. This is the old idea of status symbols. Now, look, uh, the boomer generation and the Xers, to a lesser extent, will still do a little bit on the the status symbol front of saying, hey, I'm going to have these things and that's going to show everybody my status. Uh, Millennials and Gen Z and below typically have not done this. They kind of eschewed that. Uh, They have different ways, more like virtue signaling of like, but I do this or I believe that or I have that. And that lets everybody know this is what I have. This is who I am. And I gain pride from that. But it's the same thing either way. It's this pride in what I have. If I have this thing, then it, it makes me somebody. I, I mean, think about this. Think about if you're shopping for clothes, there's the clothes at the front of the store that are on the mannequins that are up front that are kind of highlighted and say, Ooh, wow, that looks really great. Versus the clothes that are in the back of the store shoved in the clearance section. And that big massive thing that shoved back here. Here's the deal. It's the same clothes that were there up at the front two months ago. The exact same clothes, they're in the back. So why do we feel differently about them? How come these have a a lower price tag? Well, the stuff at the front of the store, maybe everybody wants them. Look at it, it's amazing. Look at all the attention that's on them. But if you're in the back of the store, nobody really wanted that, right? I mean, nobody really wanted that thing. And so it must be worth less. doesn't matter. It's the exact same thing. What matters is how it makes me feel, is what it says to other people. This is the pride of possessions, of assuming if I just have this thing, it will tell people who I really am. Look, there is no problem with owning things. There isn't. You do not see this in the New Testament. There's a lot of people, they own things. The things themselves are neutral. There's not even a problem in owning lots of things. However, there is an inherent danger the more things you have. Here's the danger. The danger is that you and I would find our identity in them. We begin to think of ourselves as people who have these kind of things, who live in this kind of neighborhood, who eat at these kinds of restaurants. This is who I am. And if I lost this, I would be less of myself. Okay, that's pride and possessions. When you're beginning to find your identity in the things of the world, instead of finding your identity in the Lord. Paul says, I can be content in plenty or in want. It doesn't matter if I got all the stuff in the world or I got nothing. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Because it's not about the things of the world. I can enjoy them, but they do not define me. Is there anything in your life that you said, well, if I couldn't eat this, if I couldn't wear that, if I couldn't have that, if I couldn't drive that, if I couldn't live here, this would significantly diminish my life. Then that is the pride of possessions. And that is a part of this world, not a part of the Lord. So look what he says here in verse, uh, at the end, in verse 17. It says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He says, here's why we should not give in to the ways of the world, the desires of the world. Why? They're temporary. They're passing away. Do you know what all these things are? The, the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and this, these pride of possessions. All of these things that we take pride in, they are sandcastles. And sooner or later, the tide comes in and washes all of them away. It doesn't matter how big your sandcastle is or how strong you've made the structure. The tide is relentless and it levels everything. 
There is coming a day where we will lose everything. We take none of it into glory. All the things that we find ourselves and give ourselves pride for, it will all go away. Why would I spend my life chasing after the things of the world instead of finding my life in the Lord? The world and its desires are passing away. But look at the alternative. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. He gives us a different word. He says, we abide. We abide. Now that also is a buzzword. Just like world for John. This is a word that John learned from Jesus. If you go back to the gospel of John in John chapter 15, the night before Jesus was crucified, he gave him this teaching. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me and let my words abide in you. He's telling him, you need to live in me. Draw your strength from me. Focus on me. Live in me and you will naturally bear spiritual fruit. You need to abide. Instead of loving the world, why don't you abide in the Lord? Why? Well, if I abide in him, I abide forever. He is not temporary. He does last forever. Everything I have in the Lord, I never lose. The treasures I have in the Lord, I never lose. He is the only one and the only part of my existence that's going to last forever. Why would I not follow after him? So he gives a command. He who does the will of the Lord abides forever. The command is this, then do the will of the Lord. Now look, that's more Bible 101, right? And we got to be careful here because what you might have just heard is get out there and do more good things. That sounds right, but it's not. So I'm supposed to do the will of the Lord. I'm supposed to not do the world stuff. I'm supposed to do the good things. Yeah, but if all you do is just go do good things, you're going to miss out on the relationship. You see, when you and I hear a verse like that, Satan's going to be your elbow in a moment to remind you about all the ways we haven't followed the will of the Lord. We haven't followed after him. We failed to do the will of the Lord. You might find yourself in despair, but remember your worldview. Jesus says, no, I saved you, not when you were great, but when you were weren't. Not when you were holy, but when you were unrighteous. You were saved by grace. And so I know about all that. You've been forgiven for all of that. So don't worry. When you see these things in the world, just repent from these things. But you don't have to do these things to stay saved. Instead, why do I do the will of the Lord? Why would I not? If he's my father, if he is the only one who lasts forever, if he's the one who loves me and gives me grace, why would I not obey him? Why would I want to disappoint him? Why would I want to be out of my life with him? This world brought me nothing but destruction and death. He brings me life. How could I not follow after him? If you are in love with the Lord, we will naturally want to do the will of the Lord. Period. End of story. If we're not doing the will of the Lord, it says something about our loves. But if all you do is try to say no to the world, you will inevitably say yes to the world. In order for us to ignore the world, that desire must be replaced. I must replace this love of the world for love of the Father. This is why we must abide and draw strength from his word, from his truth, from his spirit. This is how you grow. And as you and I live in him, this is how we find life. Is there any place in your life where you find yourself drawn to the ways of the world more than you find yourself drawn to the Father? As we finish up the series, knowing that we have not covered everything, I thought we would read a prayer from Jesus. 
who found himself in a similar situation on the night of his crucifixion. He had not told everything to his disciples. How could you do that? But he knew he had to send them out back into the world. And so he is praying for his disciples to the father. And listen to what he says. This is John chapter 17, starting in verse 11. Jesus says this. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. It's the prayer he prayed for his apostles. And I believe it's the prayer he's praying for us. At the end of this series, we still have much to learn. But God is sending us out into the world. He says, you're going to be in the world, but you're not of the world. But we get the privilege of taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, the light and life of his kingdom into a world that will hate us, but a world that desperately needs his love and life, just like we do. Never forget that we were once part of the world before Jesus saved us. And now we get to go talk to people just like us and share the life-giving truth of a gospel to a world that desperately needs it. So do this for me. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. We're going to close in a, a prayer of a hymn. It's a song we've been singing for a while, and it's just a cry for revival. A revival in ourselves. A revival in our church, our city, our nation. But only the Lord can bring that revival. And so we can ask him for it. To start in us. If the Lord has shown you things today, maybe today is the day of repentance. Of just saying, God, I don't want to have these things in me. Would you cleanse me? Sanctify me in your truth. I need to abide in you. I found myself distracted by the ways of the world, the things of the world. But Lord, what I need most is to abide in you. Show me how to do that. Or maybe there's ways we need to take that life into all of our family gatherings this week and all the places that we go. And so, Father, thank you. I thank you for your patience. I thank you for your shepherding words. Lord, we do not want to follow after the ways of this world. Instead, we want to be yours completely, wholly, truly. And so speak to us. Help us. Encourage us. Lord, help us for all the places we have Fall and pray to the desires of our flesh in this world. God, cleanse us. But Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes, that we could see you as more glorious, more powerful, more amazing, more joyous than we ever thought possible, that we could not help but follow after you. So thank you, Father, for all you are, what you're doing. In your name we pray.